You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern way. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Raley. Thanks for tuning in with us this week. We've got a good one for you. I had a chance to catch up with Kalen Pope out of Alabama. Now, if you're not familiar with Kalen, he is the owner and founder of Arrows Anonymous and part of the pro staff with Lone Wolf Custom Gear. Uh, Kalen's one of those guys that thinks about deer hunting on a different kind of level, like yeah, he eats, sleeps, and breathes it just like the rest of us whitetail nuts. But at the same time, he analyzes and breaks down not only a property, but the intel that he's getting about a specific buck in some pretty detailed ways. And so in this episode, we get all into how mature bucks bed and travel throughout pressured public ground. It's an awesome episode. When I got into it, I was like, man, we could go for another couple of hours. So Already looking forward to having him on again. Now, I hope you enjoy the show. All right, on the line with me today, I've got Mr. Kalen Pope from Alabama. Kalen, what's going on, buddy? What's up, man? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. It looks like you've got uh, quite a job on your hands. You're sitting here fletching arrows as we talk. So that must mean season is right around the corner. That's right. Everybody's getting pumped up. Maybe they'll hear this podcast and get even more pumped up. What's crazy is, is like, there are states that are already killing deer. <laughs> Dude, I saw a guy back in, I don't know if it was late July, like the last day of July or like the first day of August or something, but he had a buck down in South Florida. That right. was already yeah. hard-horned. And I'm like, dude, what in the world? Like, that's not even right. You shouldn't be allowed to post that this time of year. Like, and you- not only that, like you start thinking about like, dude, it's like 100 degrees here and this dude's probably like in the panhandle like he wants it <laughs> oh dude, dude he's he was down in like like way south like close to orlando i think like he was like, like way down like airboat i mean you see what's in the background of it it's like dude you took an airboat in there right yeah you know i, I just i don't know man what do you think do you want it that bad or uh, would, would that be you yeah i think there's there's like a switch that flips in me like it uh and it, it comes in and out. So, like, when turkeys are coming, like, there's, like, a point where I'm like, yeah, I know I'm going to hunt. And then it's like, boom. Like, this year after I killed my first one, it was like, it was over with. Like, 
I really had to, I was, I was really having a fight to keep my job <laughs> and uh, keep my wife happy. Right. And I get to play with deer, uh, especially like if I know that I'm on a deer really good and I know that I need to know more, it's not so much going in and hunting them, but it's like, dude, I, I've got to find the time to really get in this area and start breaking, breaking everything down. Right. Right. Man, I, I know that we're going to talk deer hunting today, but something about turkeys that when you just said I'm fighting real hard to keep my job, like, man, that resonates with me because I just get weird during turkey season. I I would rather I would rather shoot a shoot a whitetail all day long, but turkeys make me weird in a way that whitetails don't. And it may be just because I didn't start hunting them till later uh, in life, but man, they just I do weird things. I like forget to pick my kids up from school. I like just don't show up to work for the morning. Just all kinds of weird things. Well, it's one of those things too. Like a lot of people subconsciously, you know, there's a clock ticking, and you know, there's only so many good mornings. Like even though may you may have a five week season, you know that those first three weeks are the best. Right. So you're already like, all right, I have this many tags. Like you're doing math in your head, and you're like, dude, like you, you're at work and the sun's coming up, and you're like, what am I doing? This is a wasted <laughs> day. <laughs> You know what I mean? So yeah. I think there's a lot of subconscious that goes on with it. And uh, I've I've learned, uh, I've had some really good, really jamming, like, afternoon hunts in the last couple of years. So it hasn't been as bad. But, like, some people who only have access to, like, some WMAs and they shut down at one, like, it makes it really tough. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, dude, why don't you give us a uh, kind of a rundown of who you are before we get too deep into this thing. You know, tell us who you are, what you do, um, maybe not exactly where you hunt, but maybe what kind of uh, what kind of terrain you're looking at. Yeah, man. Uh, so my name's Kalen Pope, and I'm from the North Alabama area, and uh, so Northwest Alabama, and I'm staff for Lone Wolf Custom Gear. A couple of people know me through that, and you may have seen me at you know, especially the Southern Road shows, uh, and there's a couple other things I'm involved with. I own arrows anonymous. So I do bows and uh, build arrows for guys all over the world. Like I have some guys that are in Canada that ship me their bows every year. I'm doing coast to coast. Uh, I work on some, most of the lone wolf guys stuff. Uh, and that's just really, uh, one of those things I, I use to kind of push me through until hunting season and put a little money in my pocket to gear up, uh, but beyond that, I, I do plumbing for a living, and uh, I just love to hunt, man. And uh, I think I think I've seen some things in the southeast and put some things together in the southeast that I feel like a lot of people there. There's a lot of pieces missing, and I'm trying to I'm trying to put be the one to put them together, just to be outside of that box. Uh, especially like you know, we're not hunting mountains, but we're hunting really hard hill country with, you know, thick bedding and not a little bit of thick bedding, like so much that, that a lot of deer are doing sound based bedding, which is just a very unique place to hunt. The veer, the deer act very unique. It's a, it's just a, a perfect poison. <laughs> right. Right, man. And I think people, you know, if you cut your teeth hunting in the Southeast and I mean, obviously there's some ag ground in the Southeast that hunts a lot more, like uh, like the Midwest, I think of some parts of Mississippi, some parts of Louisiana, 
uh, some right. parts even of like Arkansas. They'll hunt a lot more like the Midwest. But in my mind, when I think of hunting the Southeast, I think of, you know, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Panhandle of Florida. I'm thinking pine country. I'm thinking rolling hills. Or I'm thinking of just, you know, primarily hardwood and, you know, uh, like what we've got around here. If it's not pines, it's all uh, oak hickory mix, you know, and it's just right. the same kind of oak hickories for days. I mean, you, you get on a ridge yeah. and that thing's oak hickory mix all the way down. And it's like, well, where are they eating? Any, yeah. any, anywhere here, uh, anywhere along this ridge for the next mile yeah. and a quarter. And uh, it's it's to the point of like I heard I heard one of the lone wolf guys at, a lo- at one of the road shows. You know, he was talking about you know catching deer coming back off of ag for bedding, and a, a lot of these guys they're hunting national forests in the south, and uh, they they brought up you know that it really didn't relate to where they were hunting, and maybe that they could dive into something to relate. And and this guy's answer was, man, I'm going to just be straight up with you. If it was me, I would drive four hours one way to get into better hunting because you're hunting the hardest shit in the country. Right. Right. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of people look over that and there's some really good deer here, but it, it is, it's definitely not as dense as other places. Right. Absolutely. And man, I've, I have gotten the chance, you know, through doing the podcasting and stuff, I've gotten the chance to talk to some of the best deer hunters in the country. Right. And right. A lot of what you just said is echoed from guys who hunt the Midwest, from guys who hunt all over the place. And, you know, they liken it. I was I was talking with Tony Peterson recently, and, you know, he always says hunting the South is a lot more like, uh, you know, hunting some big wood stuff. And, you know, maybe way up north where there's no ag and it's just monotonous woods for a long time. I, I think that's that's pretty close. I think there's some there are some things that make the South a little unique, even compared to that kind of big woods hunting. But I do think in general, our deer act a lot like big woods kind of deer. Yeah. And so, and that's how I think about it. I think about it like it's big woods situational with deer that are absolutely ignoring military crests. They're, they're ignoring any kind of typical bedding that you would think, because not only are you hunting big woods, where sign is probably minimal, but now you have huge acreage patches of stuff that you can't even walk through. Right. And these deer can get and bed in it and they know they're safe. There's no way to hunt it. You're not going to have any more than a two, three yard shot. You know, it's just, you know, it's such a unique mixture uh, of how the deer act plus the access they have to safety. It just makes it crazy. Right. Absolutely, man. Just the, do you guys have mountain laurel where you're at? Yeah, there in some places there there's a good bit of mountain laurel. Yeah. Okay. All right. That stuff, man, can just get get nasty. But I mean, we have we have stuff no matter where you are. It no matter where you are in you know Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi. No matter where you are, there are places where there's some kind of plant that makes it miserable. You know, there's and then the other end of that spectrum is I went to Illinois for the first time last year. And, you know, there's a lot of Southern guys that would think that Illinois or somewhere like that's just a cakewalk, bro. They have big undergrowth too. Oh yeah. It gets very thick up there in some pieces. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, um, I moved up to Wisconsin. Oh gosh. Right at the beginning of 2020. And we lived there for almost three years, not quite. 
And, man, I started hunting some of those uh, marshes and swampy areas in southern Wisconsin. And, dude, you want to talk about some some thick area. Um, yep. Now, I will say the deer numbers up there made things easier. And the right. deer the deer size, just they just made more sign as they moved through the woods. Like right. when a 300-pound buck walks through somewhere, he moves things around, whereas a 165-pound Alabama buck, maybe not so much. <laughs> and, and then there's the other thing of like, all right, the, the 150 that I killed on public a few years ago, uh, this deer in 500 acres, let me think about this. Yeah, 500 square acres. So not necessarily just any shape. I mapped out 500 square acres of area I knew he was using. He left on the public that I had access to to check two rubs and one scrape. And all of it. And I had a visual proof that he was moving through all of it. And uh, you start getting into, well, is, is it because his competition is so low he doesn't have to? Or maybe it's the age class of the deer because the deer was like eight and a half years old. But I've noticed that in the South, too. Like, once you do get a, into a really high-class deer, he's not leaving sign. Right. I don't know what it is, but it, it's almost like when I walk into an area where I know that there's deer and there's no sign, I know I'm walking into a big deer. Right. When So let me ask you this then. You went to Illinois, you said, you said it was your first time in Illinois. What was it yeah. like for you reading the sign there? Because I remember my first time scouting Wisconsin, and I was like, what in the world is all of this sign doing here? Well, it was it was horrible for me because, like, all right, so the, the plan was, I was like, all right, we hunt deer based off of bedding, so – I don't really, all I'm trying to do is get in there and bump a deer off his bed and I'm in. I I just, I know he's there. I can kill him after that. So my thinking in this, we lined up for like late October. Well, the piece that we were on, me and my buddy, Zach Robb, we literally walked this whole piece and there was historical sign probably from rut, but we didn't bump a single buck out of it. And we, Mm. we put. So we immediately ran into, well, there's, because it's such a high pressure area, there's probably not a big mature deer living directly on it, but he's living close enough that he can move through it, especially during pre-rut. And we're here before pre-rut. So this got, this just got real hard because there's no sign. <laughs> so it was just a totally bad call. Right, you know? right. And there was no other public really close enough to bounce to. And we ended up, uh, Pre-rut kicked in right at, like, the last two days, dude. And there was, like, one road had, like, 15 scrapes on it. Like, it just, like, boom, overnight. Yeah, yep. And uh, we were, like, we ended up seeing two really good bucks. We split them. We were going to try to cut them off. Zach's deer showed. My deer did not. Zach made a a kill shot in the last five minutes of the last day, which was, like, horrible because, like, I had just texted my wife. I was, like, yeah, we're about to head home. And Uh. that turned Yo, we're not about to hit home. <laughs> Dude, that's tough, man. You you end up paying for those. You got to be careful with those kind of text messages, man. Right. Yeah. Like, hold your tongue, dude, because you never know what can happen. That's right. That's right. Don't 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 make the call until it's until it's over, because that that'll get you in trouble. But, uh, well, man, let's let's start to dive in a little bit. You talked about, uh, you know, bucks in the southeast and how things are different, and maybe you know how their bedding is compared to you know other spots, maybe in the Midwest. Um, There's a lot of talk about how, you know, Southern deer are kind of the exception. And I I don't know how you were raised as far as when it comes to hunting. But for me, I always wanted to push towards strategy and working harder and scouting more and finding where the deer are. 
but the culture of hunting around me was like hunting is a hundred percent luck. You just go sit in a spot that looks pretty and where you can see a pretty good way. And eventually you put in the time and a deer will come by and that's when you have success. The concept behind that though, is that deer are unpredictable deer don't do the same things and you really can't locate and target specific deer. Right. And so I'll give a little bit of background. So, uh, I didn't grow up hunting. My dad hunted, but I was, my mother was schizophrenic and my dad was in and out of prison. Uh, he did a bunch of things. And so I grew up in section eight was a schizophrenic mother. And eventually child protective services took me away and moved me to Alabama. Both of my parents ended up dying when I was 16, a week apart naturally. Wow. And so around that time, like I was just going through a lot and I ended up like in, I had been in counseling my whole life, but I ended up with this new counselor. And it just so happened that youth group had a, a youth leader that hunted and he started taking me hunting. And, uh, that's how I got started hunting. And, uh, it took me a little while, like, because, you know, obviously I had a chip on my shoulder through like my late teens and early twenties, uh, that, you know, I fell into drugs and some other stuff. But once I met my wife and I sobered up, like the first thing that came to mind, like, I can remember it like yesterday. I was like, dude, I got to start hunting. Like, I just knew it. I was like, I don't know how to explain it. Like I went and got my bow like it was like two afternoons later, like I barely sighted in and I, I was hunting. And my wife was like, she didn't know what to think because like we had been together for like three years at that point. And I had been clean, but it was like I was always around. Right. And then it was boom, now I'm gone. And I wasn't like that when she met me. So it was like <laughs> a hard shift for her. Right. Uh, but the people that I was around, it was kind of like, you know, you need to go sit on this green field or, you know, yada, yada, yada. But innately, even when I was like 16, I can remember I got lost in a set of woods because I put a climber on my back and just started walking. And I was like, I just didn't want to hunt on green fields. Like I wanted to be in the woods. I just felt like there was more that people didn't know that I didn't know enough to put together, but I wanted to figure out. So, uh, I didn't know how to be mobile, but I think subconsciously I was trying. Right. Right. Just kind of had that, had that in you a little bit, man. I I was informed by like the opposite side of, of hunting. You know, I, I read too many books and watched too many TV shows where I was the type. It's like, man, I want my stands hung by like August 30th. I want to never set foot into the woods again. I don't want any scent being, you know, dispelled through the woods. I, uh, yeah, I was I went way too far on the non-mobile because I was watching guys who have a well-manicured 1000 acres or 2000 acres that they can hunt in, you know, a very laid-back kind of fashion. Like, hey, it's not the perfect high-pressure weather system kind of day, so I'm not hunting today. Yeah, right. kind of thing. And I grew up trying to emulate that and man, that hurt me. That hurt me pretty bad. I went a long time before I was mobile. Right. And it's, it's one of those things too. Like it's almost like where I feel like the less that I knew about actual, like popular hunting culture, the more that it helped me because I didn't know anything. So it's like the same way that I, I learned how to turkey hunt. I had a guy take me turkey hunt one time. I heard a turkey gobble, but like, I just started getting obsessed with it. And I was literally just like watching YouTube and I would, I bought a shotgun and I just went to public land and like, just tried 
Yeah. Like I didn't know anything, <laughs> dude. And I ended up, it took me five years to kill my first turkey. Uh, but like, I remember getting on this bird and dude, I was hitting the call like way too much. This bird was like just dumb. And he was like a mile away. Like I'm crossing a Creek, hitting the call. He's gobbling. I remember I get to the base of the ridge he's on. I hit the call. This bird is like 30 yards above me. He looks over at me and gobbles at me. And I'm like pulling calls out, laying them on the ground. And like, no, what I know now, I got to just shot him then. (laughs) Dude, like I got to get up there. So like I magically get up there with this bird and uh, he gobbles. And he was gobbling away from me. This will tell you how how green I was. He gobbles, and I'm like, that bird's like 100 more yards. So I stand up. That bird was 20 yards in front of me, gobbling mm. away from me. So uh. I took my gun up, and I'll never forget this. I shot this bird point blank at 20 yards low in the chest. And, dude, not a feather moved. Like, I can vividly remember that bird looking at me, and I could read his mind. Like, he was like, you're an idiot, and just flew off. What? Like, yeah, he just tanked it. I was like, that's a bad son of a bitch. <laughs> I was like, well, and that was that was the first turkey I ever shot at. Yeah. Holy cow, man. That's a, gosh, I, I feel like there is something. That you, what held me, one of the things that held me back for so long was a fear of getting into somewhere and messing up. Like I was so afraid of not killing something that I kept it from, I kept, it kept me from going out. And like you said, just get out there and just go try. Just go try some new things. Just go chase a bird down. Go run out, run across a creek and chase him down for a mile, calling at him the whole way. You know, just go get out there and try some things, and don't be so afraid of failure that it keeps you from ever really doing anything. Dude, th- this was so long ago. I think I was like 18, 17, and I'm 31 now that – I missed that bird, and a guy ended up, like, walking in on me, like, probably two hours later. I just sat there, and he said, dude, where did you come from? And I was like, you know, I'm, like, at this gate, kind of on this road. I don't really know. And he said, dude, do you realize how far away from your vehicle you are? <laughs> and I was like, no, nah, dude, I just heard that turkey gobble. And I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't know where I was at. I was just going to – it was awesome. <laughs> Dang. I like that. Like, a lot of people are like – I don't want to get in that situation. Like now that I have a kid, obviously not. But at that time I was like, yeah, dude, this is sick. Nobody knows where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, well, if I have to sleep out here, I got to sleep out here, man. It's just yeah. one of them things. Right. Man. But it is, it's one of those things. Uh, and I feel like there's a lot of talk, you know, especially from like social media influencers where, you know, a lot of people hear it. It's like, if you want something, you know, you have to make your dream work. And it's one of those things, uh, especially with hunting, there's going to be, you really do have to push yourself into, into uncomfortable situations and places other people may not go. And it, and it may not equal success. What it equals is learning. And that leads to success. But there's so many people that they want to, they want to jump to learning. They want right. to listen to say like a podcast or they want to listen to YouTube on how to kill big deer. And it just, me and you may not process the same piece of woodlot the same way. Right. We may come out with two totally different readings and we may be at different levels of understanding of what's going on. So as a human, you're uh even though you can hear about it it's just like driving a race car you can read a thousand books about it but when you get behind the pedal you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to control it you have to do it right you have to do 
deer. And that's the beautiful thing about life is if I could just listen to one of us and go kill big deer, what, what would make it fun? That's right. That's right. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I, I produce a ton of podcasts, man. I'm, I'm pumping out a ton of content at this point. And my hope is that I'm giving people stuff that they can stick in their back pocket and just go try. You Correct. know what I mean? Just, just give them and, one more tool that they can try out and see if it sticks for them. And it, it's one thing, you know, like possibly we say something on this podcast that somebody's like, man, I never thought about looking at it that way. Or it gives them the motivation to push a little deeper in because, dude, there's been so many times where uh, I possibly didn't want to go a little further, and it was that little further that killed a deer. Right, right. Absolutely, man. So let let's start to pick apart maybe uh, your thought process around around deer hunting. Um, you said something to me on the phone the other day, you know, that really got me intrigued, man. I, I think I think you've got. Um, okay, let me back up just a little bit. There are guys that we think of when we say, "Hey, this guy has a thing that works for him figured out." You know, you think of the Dequistos; they got a thing yeah. that works for them figured out. You think of Dan Infault. He's got a thing that works for him figured out. You think of Andy May. That dude's got a thing that works for him figured out where he goes in and he kills a mature buck in a three-day trip on a long weekend very consistently. Like, I'm not Andy May. I'm not Dan Infault. I'm not Cody DeQuisto. Uh, So my thing might be different. But when you said the other day, like, I think I'm starting to figure some stuff out. I was really intrigued, and I'm like, I got to learn more because maybe I can figure that same thing out. So... So essentially, like, I ended up on this really big deer on public. I had I killed some pretty decent deer on public, especially off of this piece. Like, this is another thing when when people around here they knew that like I had been putting time into this public, they just kind of laughed. Like these guys had all hunted it over the years. You know, it was just like one of those things. There's been some good, really good deer come off of it, but it was like. You know, it's kind of a place you just pop up during a rifle hunt and, like, if something happens, it happens. Like, dude, you're not going to change that. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, so I was sinking time into this public, and I killed a, a Pope and Young one year. And that kind of shook shook the branches. Like, everybody was kind of like, whoa, you know, he's been sinking in time, and, like, that's a really good deer for down here. So I ended up on a really big deer. We're talking, he's 150, like, right at it. And, uh. I knew, I knew that the deer was, I didn't know enough to know what I was doing, but I knew enough that I was like, I think that I can use this deer to learn what big deer do. So what I did was I started breaking down the area and I did it with cameras and uh, I knew that he was in there consistent enough because I'd heard people talk about this deer over the years. And, uh, what it turns out was, you know, a lot of them were far off. You know, they were getting nighttime pictures of them and whatever. And I ended up uh, breaking down an area. And like I said, it was about a 500-acre square block. And I pushed into it further. And I ended up pretty hot in this deer's core. And uh, what, what I started to realize, I knew that this deer – he made a very specific pathways and he branched off of it every so often. So like in the South, you may have a buck, like you may be all over him and not even know it because he may take one specific path in and out of bed because he is that confident in it. And he may be dropping right. Like this deer was, 
he was making about a 20-yard travel straight on to private. So, and I ended up talking to the guy on private about it, which he was kind of taken back about it when I started asking questions, but I just had to know. It was right. more about knowing what the deer was doing than anything. And uh, he had a lot of pictures of the deer. And so that was one piece. I was like, okay, so I know he's he's directly heading there. Well, I had him on this one loop, and it's like every three or four weeks, dude, he would just daylight there. And I was like, well, why is he just like, why is it not consistent? You know, and I knew I had started to pick up on thermals really good. And I knew enough to know that where he was daylighting was an absolute thermal death trap. He was crossing at least two creeks to get there. I was on the high point. Everything was going to fall to him. There was no way to kill him there. It was, you were just basically wishing. And uh, so I just used it to keep tabs on him. And uh, so what I ended up doing was looking at other thermal pieces. Like there ended up being a creek crossing absolutely like a mile and a half away. And it was kind of the same area and how I thought he was traveling. And sure enough, like I put a camera there and dude, he was nailing it like once a week at night. So I start putting together like this deer's making a loop but where is he in daylight? So it got to be not about killing the deer, but more about, I'm just trying to figure out what, the, I want to know what this deer's doing. So I think a lot of people get caught up in trying to kill the deer, but the best part of a lot of it is like when you really start to figure out like, this is what he's got going on. This is what's going through his head. And so essentially we go into uh, rut and I don't know enough. And so what I was thinking in my head, I was like, well, what I can do is I can let this deer go to, go to rut. And I know he's not going to be in this area. I'm pretty sure he's going to move off. And when he does, I'm going to go in and scout as hard as I can to get any piece of where he's been. So I ended up like right up against this super cut that he ended up, he was bedding in, but he was on one corner of it and very hard in and out right there. But I didn't know that at the time I found one shredded rub. Like we're talking chest high, like base to top. I knew it was him. So I put a camera there because I knew it was right above that Creek cross. I knew he was traveling. it. So even though it was only, you know, maybe a 400 yard play with cameras, I'm getting him dialed. And that was my thing is if it takes three years to kill this deer, whatever. Uh, but I'm learning. So I ended up finding another rub, and this was the rub that killed him. It was right at the base on the other side of the cutover, and there was a scrape and a rub leading right up to a ridge top, right on. So so what I figured out was I was thinking, I was like, he's hitting this creek cross in the middle of the night sometimes. I'm nowhere close to where he's starting his, his route. So obviously this, this rub and scrape going back up the other way is pointing the opposite direction. So I was like, he's coming back to bed this way. So I ended up, I ended up going in and I bumped that deer right there during rut. He, he had just like hung around for like, he would pop in and out. Once I got a camera, it's like he would leave for like about a week or two and then he would show back up and then we would leave for like another week, show back up. And most of the time it was at night. But I ended up bumping him right there, and that's when I knew. I was like, okay. And he actually, he wasn't even in the bed he was using. I think he had smelled me, and he was paying attention to the trail I was accessing on because he bed right on it. Interesting. Did you bump him on purpose? No. Okay, all right. So you, I, was, I didn't know if you'd gone in to, like, I'm finding where he's bedding. 
it was one of those days like everything was perfect like not even talking about wind just weather typing i really like overcast because i feel like and this is another thing that i'll talk about i really pay attention to overcast with it because i think it confuses deer as to when nighttime is actually ending and daytime is starting Mm -hmm. so even in the afternoons i feel like they'll leave their beds earlier even even in the morning, I feel like they'll go back to bed later because they don't have enough cognitive response to the light to understand what's happening. Right. So I feel like those are days you can really catch them slipping if you have a chance. Uh, so it was one of those days, dude. And like I walked in, I took all my stuff off and like, I was just sitting there. The sun was already up, which was kind of what I wanted. I wanted to get in there a little after daylight and I was making all kinds of noise. And I literally put everything on. I was like a mile away from where I thought that I had a shot to kill this deer. And I put everything back on, took four steps over a rise, and he was bedded looking right at me. Oh and like, immediately, like he checked me and ran right back to where he, he actually bedded. Like, I know for a fact, like that deer, like he, he was so old, it was like he just wanted to see that he was right. Mm. And I was like, Damn it. And I was actually on another really big deer in that area. And so I cut another track like a mile the opposite way. And I was fiddling like the sun's really coming up. And I was like, man, do I need to just sit on the ground? Do I need to get in a tree? What do I need to do? I decided to get in a tree, took one step. And that deer was coming into the holler and busted me too. I bumped two deer, one being 150 and one about 130. And like, the first 20 minutes i was like i'm going home dude <laughs> <laughs> the day's over the day yeah. is over I, i'd be afraid to find out what strike three was going to look like man like i was like man like it was super windy that day like i was like man like it's over with uh, right so i'm curious how you know with, with this deer being the one that kind of stood out and kind of being your opportunity to to learn okay how do big bucks move like what do they want to be doing down here in the south on public ground how did you locate this deer first? Like, how did you first become aware of him? Legitimately, like, so I had known several people that had pictures of this deer. Like, it was just like, there's this really big deer on this management. There was like 30 people that had, like, actively hunted him for four years. Wow. And so it was like one of those things, like, I never messed with him because I was like, man, that deer is too pressure. Like, I don't even want to, I know that I'm not a good enough hunter to go kill him from up under you know, 20, 30 other people. So what had happened was supposedly the deer had got shot and uh, nobody ever found him. So I told my buddy, I was like, I'm going to go find him. I was like, and everybody thinks he's dead. And I know he's not dead. I know it wasn't that deer. Like he's just too big. Like the, the, you know, like younger hunters, like they're going to express that they shot a really big deer and it may be a really good deer, but this caliber of deer that we were talking about down here, I was like, no dude, like they didn't shoot him. (laughs) So I ended up finding him and he wasn't injured and I just zipped it. I didn't say anything to anybody, but my best friend. And I was like, I'm going to kill him. Like he's, he's been in the same kind of people have had too many pictures on the same pieces for too long that he's not consistent is he's not a random pass through this deer is living here so that was like my big tell was like if i can start figuring out what this deer is doing like i can really use him to learn right right so all right so you were you were you, you said a little while ago that he was living near this supercut, 
And I imagine that's a kind of a cutover kind of deal. But but tell me what you mean by that, just so I make sure we're on the same page. So like these, like you know, like fresh cutovers would be like you know barren with like some logs in them and maybe like some standing trees around them. This was like you know probably an eight to ten year old cut. Like you're oh, not going, right. you know, full on briars, full on like and essentially what it what it this deer knew. He was sound-based bedding. It didn't matter really what the wind or thermals were doing. As long as he can make it to the bed safe, once he's in the bed, if a coyote comes in there or a person, he's going to hear him like six, 700 yards away and just dip out. Right. You know, he just, it's a, it's a 100% foolproof. And that's one of the things that people don't understand about the South, except for maybe some of like a Michigan swamp hunters and stuff is like some of these places that deer will situate themselves, uh, you really like you can't access it with him actively in bed. There's just no way he's gonna know. Right. So when it comes to to bedding, then you're seeing that a lot with with sound based bedding. Are you seeing a lot of others like sight based bedding that you may see in some more open hardwood kind of situations, or you know wind based bedding like you see in hill country? I think I think that in the south, a hundred percent of the deer. I ain't going to say a hundred. I'll say, you know, in the majority of the South, unless you're talking about a national forest where it is actual big woods. But if you're, li- if you're hunting on pieces with small pine thickets, big cuts, I think that that preferred bedding is where you're going to see big bucks and the deer that you see bedding outside of that, like maybe on your military crest or, you know, your three quarter Ridge. I think that those are younger deer that have been pushed out of preferred bedding. Right. Right. <laughs> I won't even look at, at those areas anymore because I mean, it's just, it's, it's just too, too obvious to me. Like your big deer, the, why would they be there when they have access to this? Right, man. I I'm on a lease here and I share it with a couple of guys and actually a good number of guys. It's a big lease. We got three different properties, but the whole back end of one of the, one of the properties, they, uh, they cut it recently. And guys are complaining, man, that's going to ruin the spot for years to come. It's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. And then I did a show here in Perry, Georgia, a couple weeks ago called Buckarama. And I had a lot of people share the same sentiment. Like, man, they came in and they, they clear-cut me two years ago, and it's it's ruined the hunting. They clear-cut it three years ago, and it ruined the hunting. And I'm like, guys, do you realize what favor the logging company just did for you? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think there's a fine line there. I think, you know, too much cut, it gets really bad. But if right, you have right. those, like, cut – cut sweet spots like where there's not too much cut it it's definitely it's a a a great growth spurt uh for a really good deer with really good genetics to get in there and live his life and hide and get really big and he will fly right under your radar unless you know there are guys down here where they'll hunt out of a climber and they'll climb 30 foot high so that they can see over the top of cutovers and that's how they kill big deer yep uh they're not targeting big deer but they know like hey i'll see i've seen big deer walk through this stuff right right yeah man that's some of my favorite some of my favorite hunting you know is that is that clear cut that you can still kind of see down into but it's really you know back high shoulder high head high on a on a deer where it's like man there's there's no he thinks he's safe and he has no idea well, and it's the same. It's the same reason. What people don't understand, especially in the South, because they don't get to see it the same way. It's the same reason that you can catch very large, mature bucks in the Midwest cruising the edge of corn, uh, right. cruising 
know, those hard transition lines. And what a lot of people miss is even though that buck is exposed in those moments, a, a big mature buck, I really believe, has mapped out his route that he has taken. He's never somewhere that he doesn't know where he is. Mm. So, so every step he takes, he's thinking, if I hear a limb snap or I smell something I don't like, I can dip left and I'm untouchable at all times. So that's why I like those hard transition lines start to start to add up. Like people know they see them on hard transition lines, but they don't know why. And it's plain and simple. It's an escape route at all times. Right. Same is running the edge of corn. It's an escape route. They love that side cover. Right. So talk to me a little bit about how you're seeing deer relate specifically uh, to these cutovers and maybe kind of break it down by, by age. Cause you know, I've heard a lot of people, you know, Growing up, the common wisdom was kind of like, hey, those deer get out there in the middle of that cutover, and they're never coming out. You're never going to shoot them in, in the daylight. And then I also listen to some folks, and, you know, these have been folks who typically maybe aren't from the south that I've heard say this, but they talk about their logging operations and where they are and how deer relate to, to um, you know, clear cuts and, and recently, you know, two, three, four-year-old clear cuts that the deer are going to be betting on the edge of those, you know, there'll be 20, 30 yards on the inside of the edge, but they're not way out there in the middle. What are you seeing? I think it's totally dependent on the deer's personality. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think think that, so like if you take, for instance, uh, the big deer that I killed, that deer knew that he had never seen people. And so if you look at the map of where I killed him, it looks like the cutover edge is public or is the end of public, but there's actually a 30 yard fire break there. When you, when you really go back and this is one thing that I stress to a lot of people is like, when you kill a deer, it's never by accident, especially a mature buck. And even if you don't know what happened, what you need to be doing is looking back. You need to go look at the wind. You need to look at the thermal possibilities to understand what caused that deer to end up within killing range of you? Because something happened, and you need to put it together and start using it as a tool. So uh, this deer, I realized this, th- this fire break was there, and what I started realizing was that, you know, me talking about those alternative paths, that wasn't really where that deer wanted to be. He was moving through those areas to check up on potential does or, you know, just stretching his legs. But where he wanted to be, where he had situated himself, he could hear the private gate open and close. He could hear trucks pull up and pull out. So on days where, like, I knew that deer left at, like, 9 a.m., left his bed and went on to the private, it'd be, like, 9.30, I had text that guy, like, backtracking. I was like, hey, on this date, like, what time did you leave? And he was like, oh, you know, I went and got lunch at about 9, and I came back at about 3.30, and the deer was back in bed. So what I started realizing was this deer has learned to keep such tight tracks on humans, he doesn't feel the need to bed on the inside. He's never seen anybody back here on this fire break. He knows that he has a safe play. He knows that he can J-hook and check everything before he gets back in bed. And once he's in bed, he has he can hear everything he needs to to know he's safe to go down. Man. And eat whatever, eat on green fields, eat corn, whatever they had put now. You know what I mean? He knew he had free reign. So he just did not really daylight on the public. And even when you go back and look at the days he did daylight on true public, like further in, they would always be midweek. It was never like on rifle days where there was high traffic. That deer wouldn't leave bed till midnight. Mm. He just wouldn't leave. 
And so I think that's a big piece of what people don't understand. Like when you start looking at some of these Southern killers and I put this together, especially like some of the national forest killers, uh, most of them work swing shift jobs. Dude, you can't be giving out my secrets, man. I am just, I abandoned hunting weekends like five years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's just a hard, it's a hard known fact. Like, and even if you get into urban hunting, if you start looking at it, because I've hung cameras in neighborhoods, even in middle of the rut, your Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays will be dead. Right. Monday will be dead. Tuesday, you'll start seeing activity. Wednesday and Thursday will go crazy, and Friday will be dead again. Yep, dude. Thursday, all day Thursday, and then Friday mornings are like some of my favorites because I see, I don't typically see a ton of folks on Friday mornings. Friday afternoon, everybody's getting off work early. They're trying to come out and hit the woods. But that, like, Wednesday into Thursday is always money. And then as far as Friday morning, outside of that, I'm not real interested. Right. And it's it's one of those things. So, like, I only generally get to hunt weekends. And so the way that I look at it is, like, I have to be ten times sharper than you. Whoa. So how do I make that effective? Well, when does when does pressure in the south die off late season right so but i started to putting together on this deer i figured out that he was betting where he was betting early season and i started realizing that it was food based well as season progressed he started shifting a little bit and it started to be more breeding based well i didn't know at the time but i had i just figured i was like well if i can let this deer rut and he'll come back He's, it's going to be food-based bedding, and there's no place he's going to prefer rather than where he was dropping off into that private. Well, it was like February, January 30th. I got a picture of him like two days before that chasing a doe on the opposite side of the property, so I knew he was alive. And I was like, okay, I'm in the game. He didn't get killed during rut. And then the next, like two days later, every afternoon, he's back on this bed dropping straight in this private. And I knew, like, my baby had been born, and, I, like, I was in the hospital, and I was sitting there like, dude, you're so dead. <laughs> you're so dead. And, and if you think about it, after Christmas in the South, everybody's so tired. Like, all of these mobile guys, everybody wants to go super hard early season. Everybody wants to go super hard up until rut, and the rut's done. And, dude, pressure drops off so hard you start seeing a hard pattern out of these deer the last two weeks that you won't see any other time of the season. They think it's done. Right. And if you can get your data straight and you can get on a deer really good and he can make it through the rut. Those last two weeks of the season in the South can, you can become something that people haven't seen in the South before. Right. I, remember, I killed that deer February 5th. People were like just in shock. Huh? Just, just blown up because it was late season. Yeah, it was just so like, like five days before season ends, and you just drop a tank. Like, what did you do? Yeah, like it makes sense. Ruts out, nothing's happening in that area. That ruts at Christmas, like it's very well known. Ruts over. So what happened? Man, see, where I hunt uh, in in Alabama, I, I hunt way down south, and so you know, for us, February fourth is our November seventh. Like February fourth right. is like our day. That's when we're seeing chasing. That's when our deer are out cruising and looking. Uh, but yeah, I guess February fifth up there, man. You're talking a full month plus. One after and, 
it varies like area to area. So the three WMAs around me all have different ruts. Like one will be like late November, early December. One is around Christmas, and then one goes into about January 15th. So it differs per area. But if it was me, if I was in like South Alabama, the way that I would look at it, and this is what people don't understand is you may not be able to draw the data you need in that season. I would be focusing really hard on trying to figure out where that deer is at prior to rut. Rut is irrelevant. Just throw it out. That deer is going to go crazy. So what you need to be doing is doing as much work as you can. Like, don't just go hunt. You're wasting your time. Keep trying to file down on that deer prior to rut. And because you have such a long span before rut, just take my late season and add that into your right before pre-rut, and boom, you can do the same thing. Right, right. And even then, if you can't get it done by then, when it rut happens, go in a scout – then early season next year, you make an immediate move and you shoot a big deer week one. Right. Which again, another time, I mean, there are people that kill good ones over feeders and in food plots, but you don't see a lot of folks killing real big deer opening week on a lot of our WMAs or national forest land. Correct. And, and even then it goes back to what I've started to run into like recently, like I'm a, I'm in the recreate mode. So like what I'm trying to do is like, I know I've done it once, I'm trying to recreate it. So what I've run into is, dude, I found a lot of big deer that I just didn't have access to their bedding. A lot of them were bedding on private, just so you know, and I knew I was in them, but it would be more of like, I have a decent shot during pre-rut, you know, when he gets active early, he's still kind of just checking out the same place, but it's not like I can go in and I'm going to tell you, I can kill this deer this day. So it, it turns into two, like once you get this deep into it, that, You've got to start recognizing, like, do I have an actual shot at targeting and killing this deer? And if you don't, you have to go move on and find a different deer. Right. It sometimes you may have to walk away from a 160-inch deer. Yeah. And not, and not a lot of folks have the discipline to do that. And But that that's what it takes a lot of times is, is that, that discipline to say, this one's not ready to play the game or I don't have the pieces to the puzzle that I need or, hey, I've got the pieces, um, and I know where he's bedding. It just ain't going to be on me, you know. And and I can go in there, and I can ruin this area, and I can make it to where, you know, he's going to eventually change his pattern because I'm going to pressure the heck out of him. Or I can move on to something more productive. Um, I, I'm curious real quick. You mentioned that his this year's bedding shifted from food-based to breeding-based to food-based once again once you got into the late season. Uh, and that's that's pretty typical, but I'm I'm curious what that looked like for this specific deer. Like, like how was he betting in relationship to food early season, and then how did that kind of shift? You know, was he just getting closer to the does, or or what did that look like? So, what the only way I know to explain it, and and this is a, a reality that a lot of people have to come to terms with too, is like you'll never spend enough time in the woods, or especially with kids and a job, that you're going to be able to know every move that deer makes. Right, but what can do is start to come to conclusions about the changes that you're seeing so what i noticed was like the closer we got to rut the less i saw him leave that bed i knew he was bedding somewhere else and i just figured i was like he's situating himself closest to the first doe group he knows is going to come in heat right right and uh, so and so the same thing with the late season i came i seen him come back and get super consistent so just to me like I think that that pattern is very repeatable among any deer. It's the same thing. That's where, 
when you hear people say, man, deer act the same as the Midwest as they do down south, I think that they do, they do 100%. I think that they may have tighter travel, and some of that travel may be a lot less accessible, so it makes it a lot harder to see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that, you know, one of the things I say a lot, I do, I do some some consulting with folks on private land, and one of the things we say a lot is deer do deer things. Like deer behave in certain ways and can be somewhat predictable. The challenge comes in when every property or every region, let's say, gives that deer a different way of expressing that deer thing, right? So like deer bed and they feed and they breed. And where they do those things, how they do those things, what their movements look like when those things are on their mind uh, are going to become very situational when it comes to, um, you know, two different properties that, that look very, very different. Or what I've even seen before, two properties that look very, very similar and the deer on those properties just do something a little bit different. It could be influenced by food. You know, there could be one little thing that yep. changes the whole pattern. Um, you know, for instance, one one good example of this was one oak tree, one big white oak that just was raining. And it took the deer in a totally unexpected direction one fall. And it was like, well, how in the world are we going to accommodate this? Well, come to find out, we figured out, you know, what they were doing. But in that instance, for a minute, it looked like deer weren't doing deer things because we didn't know that oak tree was there. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we didn't know that that was a dropper. Found it. Okay, now deer do deer things, and it all makes sense once again. Um, let's well, see, too, and, like, even getting into that conversation, uh, I feel like that's a hot topic in the South is, is hot oak trees. All right, well, when you really get into this and you really start talking about big, mature bugs, I don't care how hot a tree is if it's not close enough to his bed you're not going to see that deer in daylight he may go to it he may be there in the middle of the night when he knows he's safe but it also you to hunt for me what it would take for me to hunt a hot oak tree is to have daylight pictures of a buck in that area and know that is it's accessible enough that he would go hit him you know midday or late afternoon if not you just find a hot oak tree in the middle in the in the middle of the woods and the does will tear it up but a big mature buck, a lot of a lot of things that people misunderstand and what started making me start realize it is when this deer went to rut that I killed, there was a piece of property that nobody hunts right there. And I hung cameras on every corner of it. And what I saw was that that deer was leaving that property in the middle of the night and coming back on the public. So what he was doing, he was smart enough to know that he never smelled people on this piece, and his testosterone was rising, and he was going to put himself in the safest situation to operate in daylight that he could. Man. And and so people, they, they don't understand at what level of intelligence that deer is operating. They, they think, you know, well, he's got to show. He doesn't have to do anything. If that deer is smart enough, he'll lay in his bed, and he will only move at very last lot to make sure that he stays alive. Right. He doesn't, he can do everything he needs to do at night. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, one thing I, I'd love to touch on this feed tree topic. This is a, this is a topic that I have heard a lot about, watched a lot about, read a lot about. I have not in all of the podcasts that I've done, I've not done one episode on feed trees and it's, <sighs> I don't know, man. I grew up hunting oak trees. Like, I get it. 
I understand it. Um, but the way it has been billed for a lot of folks is all, it almost makes it sound like, man, there will be two white oaks dropping 50 yards apart from each other. One of them, the deer eat at and eat all the acorns. The next one, the deer totally ignore and they never, ever go to it. And it's like, that's just, that's just not how it works. Like there's been studies done that show there is no difference between the acorns from this tree and the acorns from this tree. They're going to taste the same. Like what makes a hot oak tree? And I'm starting to develop some thoughts around that and eventually want to do an episode based on it or devoted to it. But I'm curious to hear your opinions because I I think we're probably going to be pretty aligned on it. Uh, What in your mind makes something a hot oak tree? One that, you know, is the one where the bucks are coming to. I don't think that there is. Right. I mean, possibly at night it would be depending on is there a – if you're having multiple bucks come to it, more than likely most of them are – they're either bachelored up still or you're having multiple younger deer come through at subordinates. But you're not going to see – for very long, multiple, very large, mature bucks hitting the same tree. And even then, like when you start talking about consistency, I don't care anything about a feed tree other than I need them to produce acorns because that's what makes deer get out and leave sign at night. So that can give me the tell that there's a big deer in the area. So we saw it last year. There was no sign hardly anywhere because there was no acorns. Deer were just sitting in cuts or eating whatever they had to eat, and they just didn't move and leave sign. So what I, I figured out is that those those mass trees are very key to, you know, possibly getting a tail on a big deer. And that's the only thing that I think that they should be used for. If you want to go kill deer, yeah, you can go sit an oak tree. You want to kill big deer, just ignore feed trees. You need to figure out where he's living. Right, right. Now, and, oh, I, now uh, if there's a feed tree in his bedroom, that's a different story. Exactly. And that was going to be my point. Like that's been my take on feed trees is I've sat a lot of oak trees that are dropping and I've seen a lot of deer come to them over the years. Right. Like I've been hunting the South for a long time. Uh, not as long as some, so I don't want to talk like I'm the, the wise old sage here, but at the same time, I think when somebody says, Oh yeah, I got this buck on this feed tree and this buck on this feed tree and that buck on that feed tree. I don't think there's anything special about that specific tree or the fruit that it's dropping, or anything like that. What I think you have found in that case is a tree that was in very close proximity to bedding cover, and either the first food he's going to come to when he leaves his bed, or the last food he's he's passing by on his way back to his bed in the morning. Like, that's Bingo. what you're finding. Or, or the one that's just real, real close to it, and he gets up mid-morning, and he comes out for a little snack before he turns around and goes lays back down. Like, that's so, what a hot oak tree is to me. Yes, and so, you know, undoubtedly there's going to be somebody who's like, man, you know, they listen to this and they're like, man, I just shot a 140 feeding off an oak tree in the middle of wherever, you know. But what you have to look at and what you have to start understanding is, like, your longevity in the game and your effectiveness to kill big deer. If it's not something that you can repeat year in and year out, why are you doing it? Why, why would you even continue? Name one person in the South who is consistently killing very large, mature whitetail, only hunting feed trees. There isn't one. Right. There is plain and simple. So it's, it's, it's a wash. Right. And I, 
It's not that they're not important. I think that people are ignoring what they need to be used for and where they're situated. That's what makes them important. Right. Now, you've got some volume killers who are right. hunting only Correct. feed trees, right? Like, that's the that's the feed tree thing, right? Like, if you're, if you're in it for the volume, and which, you know, a lot of places in the South, you probably ought to be uh, in, it, in it for the volume. Yeah. And, and depending on where you're at in your hunting career, you should probably be in it for the volume. Just getting shots on living targets, you know? Um, then yeah, they can be really great. And, you know, one tidbit for me, I, I did a little bit of an experiment last year because it was kind of the same thing. Everybody was talking about feed trees, especially all the Southern podcasts, you know, were all about the feed tree. And, um, so I put up a bunch of cameras and when I say a bunch of cameras, I mean, I mean a bunch of cameras on uh, each on white Oaks and each one that was dropping a good crop, had good sign around it you know, droppings and the whole thing. The only feed tree that I found uh, that had consistent buck activity on it in daylight was the one that when I got there, I saw two rubs before I ever saw the acorns. Correct. That you were in their bedroom. Right. I was in their bedroom. I was, it was literally on the edge of a cutover. Now, what's that? That's a bingo. Yeah, exactly. And man, I, I kicked myself because this was, this is behind a locked gate on the WMA. It's about four miles back in, right? So that's a four mile walk. If you're going to go back there and, and commit to getting back in there. I don't have an e-bike yet. I used an e-bike to get the camera back in there. I went back, picked up the camera after season uh, when they had the gate open one day for a small game hunt. And if I had hunted that pretty much any time from the end of September in through that first week of October, I could have had a good two or three and a half year old buck on the ground here in Georgia. And that's, and that's the other big piece of this puzzle too, is like, so when I went in to kill this deer, I already had a pretty good understanding of thermals. I wasn't as in depth as I am now, but what a lot of people don't understand is like maybe they get in a situation with a big deer where they're kind of where I was and they just haul in there and they think their wind's right and the deer never shows. Well, the deer picked you. That's what they don't understand. There's so many people that are like, well, I've seen deer walk with their ass to the wind. This is what I've come to the conclusion of after I've thought about it and thought about it. Everybody knows that a deer from three years old to four years old is a totally different animal. Well, what makes them a different animal? They quit paying attention to wind because they figure out wind will get them killed. Wind swaps, wind swirls, wind will get you killed. They start focusing on thermal picks, and that's what makes them a different animal. Right, right, yeah. And they're they're using those areas where, um, I mean, like you mentioned earlier, there there was a thermal nightmare, right? Like they're in those areas where, man, it doesn't matter what direction you are on that deer, he's gonna smell you. Yep. You know, <laughs> and that's like, it's like, I think about, you know, public in the South, you know, everybody's rolling in and everybody wants to get in the tree before daylight. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude, you have creeks in every bottom around you and your scent is dropping before the sun ever comes up. And those creeks, deer pay attention to which way water moves and they'll bed based off of it. And what they'll do is they're probably not going to get up because they've heard all this traffic. But if they do, the first thing they're going to do is get up and cross that water. And as soon as they do, they're going to turn around and go right back to bed. Right. Right. Because there's too much scent. Uh, and that's where like you start playing like, I was on a really big deer uh, last year. 
he ended up, I think the deer's dead, but I, I, I had looked at how he had been moving in the past and I knew I could kill him. And essentially this property is situated up against the river. And I knew that this, this property was situated, if you step foot on it where most people enter, it's a funnel right down to a creek crossing at the river, and that deer was crossing it. That's the first thing he was doing coming on this property. I mean, there was a dead nut deer crossing right there. So what I figured out was as soon as this deer steps onto this property, he knows if people are here or not. For one, the river is sucking scent from onto that property into itself a lot further than people think. I would say, you know, a quarter mile to a half mile at a slow pool because it's such a strong current constantly. So he's living and crossing this funnel. How do I avoid it? Well, I started thinking and I was like, well, dear Jay hook into their bed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come in two miles down the river. I'm going to walk the riverbank the whole way. And I'm going to J-hook back behind it so scent never crossed it. And obviously the deer never showed up, so I never got to test the theory. But I even got to the point of realizing, like, even if I don't walk the river the whole way, I could cant my way. And every creek that I cross is a thermal break. Essentially, once I step into it, my scent's sucking down, and everything behind me is irrelevant. It's not going to cross that creek unless you have a hard wind blowing it. So it's like a clean slate at every creek you cross. So as long as I made my way an inch closer and closer to the river, I could still swoop behind him and he would have no idea. Right, right. But we're talking about very, very uh, in-depth. Yeah. Like, Dude, you know I can already tell we're going to have to do another one, and we should probably do one based on thermals because that's an area where it, it's become a lot more important to me over the years but it is an area where I'm still learning. Like I, I know for a fact I'm still learning. Um, and, and it's not only how thermals behave in certain areas, but I'm really still learning to even take that into consideration. Like on my best days, I obviously I take it into consideration without even thinking about it, but I still find myself at times being like, Oh crap. I didn't think about the thermals. You know what I mean? I'll tell you this, and this is the honest answer. Unless you know exactly where a deer is about to move through. So, like, during the rut, you might as well throw thermals out of the scenario as much as you can. You have no idea where deer are going to come from. Right. So, if you were going in and you know you have a deer pinpointed, it's almost it's almost irrelevant to think about thermals for the most part. Uh, and the reason being is you don't know what's going to happen. So there's no way to plan for it. You can plan as much as you can based off of deer direction and yada, yada, yada. But that's why people, so many people fail at, at making the thermal connection because you have to be on a deer to the point of that you actively put your thermal somewhere because you know, he's coming somewhere else and watch him walk to you and have no idea that you're there and that's when you can really start making the connection that's why it it makes it so hard for southern guys because then you get into like how many people have actively killed a deer coming out of or going back to his bed so and the best way i have to explain it to people how i started learning i knew there was a big deer using this area there was the pope and young i killed and uh i didn't know exactly where his bedding but i was pretty sure but it was a thermal hub, and this is what I'll tell you about thermal hubs 99.9% of the time. A big deer is going to avoid something that he knows multiple deer will use. So thermal, I hate the word thermal hub because when you start talking about big mature deer in the south, if he recognizes that other deer use it, he'll avoid it. 
people avoid it because other deer will get killed. And that's exactly what thermal hubs do. If you want to kill subpar, like, you know, three-year-olds, I'm not going to say subpar, but if that's the, if that's what okay with you, if that's what you're actively hunting, then you can hunt thermal hubs. Those are the deer you're going to catch in them. But 99% of the time, a big deer is going to backdoor around that, 100%. Right. So, but in this situation, it did not happen that way, and it was just a perfect storm. This deer was bedding right on the edge of a thermal hub. I didn't know exactly how thermals work. And we're talking about a perfect bowl, like a 40-yard by 40-yard bowl with a little knob in the middle. I, I knew that thermals were real. I didn't know how to make the connection. So it was like an eight-mile-an-hour northwest wind that day. So in my head, I was like, well, maybe if I hang 20-foot high and sit on the southwest side, my wind will push my thermals hard enough out of the bowl constantly now this is a constant wind any kind of drop any kind of stall your thermals are going right into it but with a constant wind maybe it'll push it out and he'll just never smell me sure enough dude like 30 minutes before last light he drops in i watched this deer drop his head to the ground and pick it up for probably five minutes he had no idea and so what i started realizing they're doing is like they're not smelling the ground they're using their rack to waft scent off of the ground Oh my goodness! And that's what they're doing. They're they're pulling scent up off of the ground as hard as they can. So, but uh, because it's bringing an area, so. right, right. But he, he never smelled me. I ended up killing him. Like I watched that deer for five minutes, and I knew I was like, I'm invincible. Dang. And this thing. So when I went in to kill the big deer, it's like a T ridge, and I knew he was in this section. So I sat closer to this section with my scent being pulled by a creek and I had a direct south wind. So I had a pie shape of scent free area where I knew that that deer was going to come from. And I, as long as I killed him before he crossed my wind, I was good. And that's exactly what happened. Man, dude, so, this is, this is so good. Like I'm, I've, I've got a hundred ideas for, for follow-up conversations. Like this is, this has been really, really good. I appreciate you making the time for this. We're right at like an hour and ten minutes, man. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you get on with your, uh, with your arrow fletching, dude. I've been watching you do it the whole time. You're a, you're a disciplined dude. <laughs> appreciate it, man. I get psycho when it comes to deer. No, dude, this is <laughs> this has been so good. I'm, I'm literally, I mean, I'm sitting here. I'll show you this. I'm sitting here taking notes, and I've got like epi- new episode ideas and all that stuff where I need to have you back on and try to connect with you again. Uh, right. Obviously, man, I want to talk thermals want to talk thermal hubs, um, you know, would love to talk, you know, cutover strategies again too, because, you know, the whole time you're talking, I'm just thinking of how I've seen deer use cutovers in the past. And, you know, some of my favorite places where they bed either around the edge or you find those pockets in the middle where for some reason the pines didn't take off. Maybe that was the landing and where they planted just didn't take off. Like those spots that are kind of like holes almost in the middle of a pine planting, Dude, though, it's like every deer trail in the whole thing converges right there. It's like they're all yeah. headed straight for that hole in the middle. I don't know and, why and they that, do it, but they do it. And that's one of those things where, like, a lot of people will be like, yeah, I can kill a big deer there. Well, maybe not. You probably can't <laughs> kill a big deer there. Right. But you can get a camera in there and realize that there's a big deer using the area, and that can lead you to killing a big deer. Exactly. Yeah, hunting – Hunting those oftentimes, I mean, you're you're looking at a two, three, four hundred yard walk through stuff you just can't hardly get through, and you're going to make too much noise. 
right. you're not going to be able to do it. But you can get intel from there, absolutely. Dude, there's so many nights like if like where I just sit up and like if I know that I'm on a deer, like it'll be like 11 at night and I'm just looking at the area. I'm just looking at where is he? What is he doing and how can I backdoor him? Where can I get that I know that he wants to use that I can situate myself to kill him? And so like you start running these scenarios through your head and like, nah, my thermals aren't gonna work there. Nah, this isn't gonna work. And there's always an answer but you sometimes you have to dig deep. It's like when I thought about Jay hooking that deer, I really had to like really sit down. It's like, I know nobody else can kill this deer because he's too old. They would have done it by now and he's not making mistakes. How do I catch him making a mistake? Man, man. All right, dude, good stuff, man. We'll have to do this again. If folks want to uh, keep up with you, watch what you're doing for the rest of the season or maybe even uh, call you too late to make some arrows or work on their bow, where can they find you? They can find me at my regular Instagram is at, at Kalen Pope. And then my uh, arrow business and bow business is at arrow under, arrows underscore anonymous. And that's on Instagram or you can look me on Facebook, Kalen Jordan Pope. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Guys, I'll link uh, I'll link all of that in the show notes there. So if you want to get a hold of Kalen, you can do that easily. But, brother, thanks for coming on the show. We'll keep in touch. Good luck this fall. Yeah, dude, you too. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way.